Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Red Flags, a post-true crime boom true crime podcast from Investigation Discovery, where we talk about the warning signs, big and small. We're your one-stop shop for all things true crime, the latest cases in the news and the shows and podcasts and books about them. I'm Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer, author of Lady Killers and Confident Women. And I am Karina Michelle, an armchair detective turned true crime TikToker at Daily True Crime Minisodes. And I also have a sociology degree to back it up. So today we're going to talk about cold cases. We're going to start by talking about a 40-year-old cold case in which two young girls go missing from a suburb in D.C. And then we're going to deep dive into a very disturbing and tragically common cold case in which a young woman goes missing from a reservation in Montana. So... First things first, Karina and I have actually been previewing a two-part show on ID called Who Killed the Lion Sisters. Um, It debuts this Saturday, November 28th at 9 p.m. And it's a very troubling case. There's a lot to say about it. Um, Karina, did you want to walk us through the facts really quickly? On March 25th, 1975, two sisters, 12-year-old Sheila and 10-year-old Kate Lyon, disappeared after visiting a mall in suburban Wheaton, Maryland. Their case resulted in one of the largest police investigations in Washington, D.C. metropolitan area history. And 42 years later, this long, cold case did end up with a conviction. So one of the things, Karina, that strikes me about this case is it happened in suburbia, which is this safe space in our imagination, but it's also sort of this iconic true crime space, because if someone is snatched from suburbia, that's very compelling to us. I don't know if it's because it feels like it shouldn't happen or whatever. This is one of those original stranger danger cases. I think you can say, like, this is one of those cases where people in the community did not lock their door 
before it happened. And then once it happened, they started locking their doors. It kind of reminds me of the Jacob Wetterling case in Minnesota. Some of these cases where we really look back on them and we say, wow, society was divided into a before and an after. Every time I talk to my parents, they'll say things like, when I was your age, or not anymore because I'm 25, but Mm -hmm. when I was younger, they did make such different points of this is how my childhood was. I would play outside and I would go to these places by myself. And I feel like you were so dependent and so closed off at the exact same age. Yeah. Uh, You know what my dad did when he was a young man? He hitchhiked across the U.S. And every time Uh. he tells me stories, I'm like, be grateful, sir, (laughs) that you were not picked up by a serial killer because it seems like every other story from that era ends that way. So, Karina, I know you got a chance to speak to one of the show's producers, right? Yeah. So I had the chance to speak with executive producer Aaron Bowden, who is also the son of Mark Bowden, the author of the book The Last Stone, a masterpiece of criminal interrogation. And this series is actually based on Mark's book. You also might know Mark Bowden from his book Black Hawk Down. I actually already watched the special, and I just want to say it's one of those cases that you feel like you can't breathe for a full two hours because it's so difficult. But I want to know for you, what piqued your interest and what made you want to talk more about this case? Well, that kind of gets into a little bit of where the story of this all kind of originated, and that's with my dad, the author, Mark Bowden, um, who I've collaborated with a lot in the past. But this was a story that he was very interested in because he had a relationship to it that lasted about as long as the case itself. Um, You know, this is a 40-year-old cold case. And initially, my dad was a 23-year-old young reporter at the now defunct Baltimore News American. And his job as one of the newest reporters, one of the youngest reporters at the newspaper, at that time was to come in in the morning and call around to all the police precincts to see if anything had happened overnight that might warrant a story. So this is 1975, uh, two years before I existed. (laughs) So he wound up calling up to uh, Wheaton, uh, Maryland, uh, in Montgomery County, and they told him that these two little girls had disappeared from a mall. And he went up there to you know, start reporting that story. And he wound up being there for about three weeks. Um, And the story just kept going. And he kept covering it because he was first there. He was just the Lion Sisters guy at the paper until finally this kind of died out. I can't imagine also the generational difference of getting a break in the case. And how did that look in terms of the media So these 40 years go by, you know, the 23-year-old young reporter that my dad was back then turns into a now 68-year-old grandfather. But he was working on a different book when my aunt, who still lives in the uh, Baltimore area, emailed him and said, Mark, you got to look at the news. The police have announced that they have this new break in the Lion Sisters case. They've announced this guy as a person of interest. And so he got off the phone and immediately drove the about hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from his house near Philadelphia down to Montgomery County to go talk to the police chief there and let them know that he was really interested in writing about this and figuring out, you know, what's going on here? Uh, What happened? How, you know, how did you find this person? How did this case 
come back alive after all this time. Yeah. And I think when it comes to true crime, journalists and reporters are something that I think is so looked over sometimes. They're such an important role because they do serve as the voice for these victims and their families. This family was put through hell because even though it got less attention, this case, than a story like this would have, you know, would get today. Anytime anything did come up, you know, they were sort of trotted out in front of the cameras. I remember when I met with the detectives who worked on this case, I asked them about their contact with the family and the Lyon family cooperated really closely with um, detectives and had a really good relationship with each of the four detectives that you see featured in the documentary. I mean, all of them actually had connections, all the detectives to the case that made them intensely feel the horror of, of this. Chris Homrock, like me, has uh, girls around the same age. Katie Leggett, she actually shares a name with Catherine Lyon um, and a birthday with Sheila Lyon. So she felt like she was almost kind of like weirdly called to work on this. You know, the other two detectives, Dave Davis and Mark Janey, also both had kids around the same age. When we found them after they had, you know, participated in the book, around 2017 is when we really started working on our documentary project. And they basically just said no. <laughs> they said we we don't think we can relive this again. You know, it was hard enough the first time, but all of them to some degree, you know, were forever changed by their experience working on the case. It got really dark actually. And, and it took about a year of effort to convince the detectives that this story was really worth telling and that they were the only ones who really knew how the case had been resolved and that, that that had tremendous value to the community, you know, not just the the D.C. area community, but like kind of the fabric of society relies on the idea that it, when things happen like this and two little innocent girls disappear, that people won't stop trying to hold anyone ac accountable who might have been involved with that. It's like we need, you know, to right that wrong in some way, which obviously can never be done in this, you know, situation. But to whatever degree, you know, there could be any kind of justice. It, it feels like the type of story that you need to see resolve. Once again, Who Killed the Lion Sisters will be premiering this Saturday, November 28th at 9 p.m. on Investigation Discovery. So the case of the Lion Sisters took up a lot of space. It took up a lot of resources, you know, over 16,000 hours from investigators, over 50 search warrants, over 100 interviews and interrogations. It took up a lot of space in the cultural imagination, too, in the media. It's just, it's a big one, right? And um, now we want to turn and look at what happens when these missing person cases, which are so uniquely haunting, and I think you know, they trouble the families and the people who are working the cases in a very specific and terrible way. We want to look at what happens when these types of cases don't get the resources, don't get the media attention, you know, don't get the 16,000 hours. Um, we're going to dive into what is really an epidemic in this country of missing and murdered indigenous women. And as you'll see from this story, there's a real lack of resources here and certainly a blatant lack of media attention to these cases. 
So, Karina, this is a huge problem, and I know you know it's a problem. Um, In certain counties in the U.S., indigenous women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than any other race in America. But for some reason, this issue just has not been talked about. It has not been in the cultural imagination. So today, we're going to dive into the case of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. And then later in the episode, I'm going to bring on an indigenous activist who can help us unpack some of these broader issues. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Spring is officially in bloom here in the Northern Hemisphere. And with a fresh season underway, you might be seeking your own transformation. For some, that means a new approach to weight loss or nutrition. Noom has a unique approach. Noom is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. It's built to meet you where you are because Noom understands that no two people are the same. Noom stands out to me because it offers a holistic approach to well-being. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself and treat yourself you should. What's more, Noom believes in nourishing rather than restricting. Noom can help you lose weight while still enjoying your favorite foods because this approach is about eating well and treating your body right. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So earlier this month, the Arizona Study Committee released a report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I shared it with Tori to see if she knew anything about it or how involved she was in this issue. Yeah, and this report is incredible and devastating. And it sent me down a rabbit hole of looking at these individual cases of individual missing Indigenous women. Um, There are a lot on Reddit. Surprise, surprise. And one that caught my attention and that I want to tell you about today, Karina, is the story of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. And I thought, first of all, let me just cite my sources. Um, I'm mostly using an article that was published in The Guardian by Kate Hodel and a great long report for ABC News by Evan Simon, Jessica Hopper, and Ali Yang, and Ashley's sister's testimony in front of a Senate committee, um, which happened on December 12th, 2018. Ashley Loring Heavy Runner grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, which is 
one of the nation's largest reservations. It's 1.5 million acres, which becomes significant later on. It's windswept. It's desolate in a, you know, a beautiful way, a lot of gorgeous natural resources there. And according to a lot of people who knew Ashley and people who are relevant to this story, there is a lot of unsolved crime there. So Ashley and her sisters uh, were in foster care for a while as kids before eventually moving in with their grandparents. Ashley was really into athletics. She was a great high school athlete. Uh, She was a really sharp student. She attended Blackfeet Community College, and one of her professors there told this sweet anecdote where Ashley was always surprised when she got an A. She'd be like, what, me? And her professor's like, yeah, Ashley, like, just like last time, you got an A. (laughs) You're someone who gets A's. (laughs) So, you know, I think she was probably humble. As she grew up, She had two really tough losses, sort of back to back. She lost her grandpa, who she was really close to. And she also had a really tough breakup. It was described as a breakup um, with her first love. And her older sister, Kimberly, who's a main part of this story, says that those two losses kind of changed Ashley as a person. She actually said, quote, that she was a whole different person after that. And she started doing drugs and she started hanging out with an older crowd. And by older, I mean like people in their 50s. So she's 20 at this point. And, you know, she's sort of become a different person, according to her family, and is hanging out with some older dudes. So now we're in early June 2017, and Ashley is at a party. There's a video of her at this party, and her sister Kimberly is actually in Morocco visiting her fiancé, and she gets a text from Ashley asking her for some money. Now, it's unclear to me if that text is ominous or if that's like a normal text between them. Kimberly texts back, you know, I can't help you, I'm actually in Morocco. And then she asks if Ashley is okay, and Ashley texts back, always. And that's the last thing Kimberly hears from her sister. So Kimberly gets back from Morocco, back to Montana, and she still hasn't heard from Ashley. About a week goes by. She doesn't think it's weird at first because Ashley is one of those people who's always losing her phone. So, you know, whatever, nothing weird, right? Until their dad has a bit of a health crisis. And the fact that Ashley doesn't show up then is weird. And suddenly Kimberly is like, wait a second. She does some digging. Turns out no one has heard from Ashley since the night of the party. So on the Blackfeet Reservation, you have a tribal police force. Mm -hmm. And then you also um, like people who also have jurisdiction over that area are feds from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is notoriously underfunded. And so is the tribal police force on this reservation. They're underfunded and they're understaffed. To cover 1.5 million acres, guess how many police officers they have? I want to say like 50 to 100, but that's probably so wrong. It's wrong in a very sad direction because that's high. That's what they wish they had, actually. They wish they had 50 officers. They have 18 Oh, no. I know. So this is not a robust police force by any means. So there's that. And then there's also an issue that comes up in this case and comes up in a lot of these missing indigenous women's cases where the fact that the missing person is an adult means there's not like there's not an Amber Alert that gets sent out, you know. Um, There's not an urgency because what the police told Ashley's family And what they tell a lot of these families is like, well, she's an adult. She can do what she wants. She can wander off. 
I also think it's kind of scary to think that there's no way to really justify having more police officers because there's no data to back up why they need more <gasps> police officers. That's a really good point. I, yeah, I, I don't know if that I've come across that said anywhere official, but I think you have to be right because as we know, data is what directs a lot of funds just in the government in general. This is actually going on in Puerto Rico, too. So in Puerto Rico, there's high rates of gender violence and femicides, and police are reporting one number. But when different feminist groups start compiling all the news articles written about women who have gone missing or have been murdered or have had any type of crime committed against them, the numbers don't match up. The number that police are reporting is extremely low when compared to the clear evidence that there is. Yes, yes. That good comparison, big problem. So back on the Blackfeet Reservation, it's been two weeks since Ashley disappeared, and we finally get our first lead. Someone saw a young woman running away from a man's vehicle, a vehicle with a man in it, on this highway, U.S. Highway 89. So that's kind of it. So search parties search the area, and three days later, they find a gray sweater that eyewitnesses say Ashley was wearing the night of the party, a gray Roxy sweater. Now it's got holes in it, and it is stained with, quote, red spots. But another six weeks go by, and finally, two whole months after Ashley has gone missing, that's when the investigation officially starts. The sweater is taken by the tribal police, Blackfeet Law Enforcement, and it's turned over to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. There, an agent says that he sent it to a crime lab to be tested. Turns out he never sent it. It just sits there for months and months and months. In the meantime, the Blackfeet law enforcement are telling Ashley's family that they searched the area where the sweater was found, right? Mm -hmm. Because you would think like, okay, we found a sweater, like, let's see what else we can find. But the family's never seen them search the area. The family's searching, but the family's never seen actual police searching. Um, and then when they contact the tribal law enforcement people again, someone who's on Ashley's case says, yeah, I don't actually remember them ever searching the area where the sweater was. And then... The family is told that Blackfeet law enforcement has stopped taking tips on Ashley's case. And if anyone has a tip, they have to take it to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then when the family calls the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Affairs repeatedly doesn't get back to them. A huge, huge, huge issue in these cases is that there are too many bureaucracies involved. You've got, in some cases, the state is involved. In some cases, the feds are involved, you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then you have the tribal police. And all of these bureaucracies are doing a horrible job communicating with each other. Sometimes it's unclear what falls under whose jurisdiction. The person who gets involved depends on the type of crime and depends on the race of the criminal and the victim. I, it's like har actually hard for me to describe this because it's so confusing, but it's what a law professor named Robert Clinton called in 1976 a jurisdictional maze. So if you're lost in it, I'm right there with you. The Loring family is getting caught up in this net. Kimberly, Ash's older sister, is forced into the role of DIY detective here, and she is, you know, literally physically hiking up mountains and dealing with different rumors and searching and searching and searching. She searches with a drone. She searches on her own two feet. She's just not going to give up. 
So back to the gray sweater. Um, the gray sweater was found near-ish to a lake house where Ashley used to party with this 50-something guy named Sam McDonald. So Sam vigorously denies that he has anything to do with Ashley's disappearance, but he does admit that they were partying together for a couple of days before she went missing. And he says that on the morning of June 11, 2017, Ashley asked him to take her to a roadside pull-off type place where she was going to meet someone. So Sam drops her off there and then he actually leans his seat back in the car and goes to sleep because he's been partying for so long. And when he wakes up, there's no sign of Ashley. So now, Karina, the case is turning into, in my mind, kind of a classic small town, everybody knows something, but nobody's talking type case. There's something particularly creepy about that vibe. Kimberly and her family are getting weird texts from people implying that somebody knows something about someone who did something to Ashley or somebody's not saying something. The family has their own suspicions. There's just seems to be a sense, at least for the Loring family, that people know more than they're saying and that they're just refusing to talk. Yeah, I feel like that reading a lot of true crime cases, there's a lot of missing person cases or or even cold cases, I feel like this is where it's most common, where there is this small town rumor that just doesn't seem like a rumor. But there's nothing the family can really do about it because, you know, no one's officially been declared a suspect. Even the media reporting on it has to be very careful. I don't know how you would deal with that because they're just rumors. So, I mean, how can you translate that into anything concrete? Yeah. And I think in these type of cases where you really just don't have an idea as to what could have happened, a lot of these rumors just make sense. And they're kind of a comfortable space to latch onto because it gives you some type of answers. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's kind of like what we talked about in our first episode about how the human mind fills in outlines. Yeah. Like, I know if I'm learning about a cold case and then if someone gives me a, just a tidbit of someone who might be suspicious, I'm like, oh, that they did it mm -hmm. because we just crave resolution. Yeah. So the second someone drops in a name, it's like, that's who did it. There are so many cases that I think are like this where depending on the perspective that you give you can come up with so mm -hmm. many different solutions and oh so many gosh. people who you think did it. Okay, so let's go back to June of 2018. It's now been a year since Ashley has disappeared, and her family is once again taking things into their own hands. They get permission to search this specific trailer where Ashley allegedly hung out that summer before she went missing. The police have already looked through the trailer, but her fa Ashley's family wants to look themselves. So they go, and there's this shag carpet on the floor, and they see a maroon stain on the carpet, and they cut up the carpet and there's a bigger maroon stain under it. Now this is one of these frustrating details where it sounds really ominous. I know what you're all thinking but it also could be nothing and we don't um, actually have a resolution to this yet but the family cuts up the carpet and turns it into the police and as far as I was able to find in my research for today uh, we don't actually know what the status of the carpet is. So by December of 2018 Kimberly sort of gets the first chance to cast a bigger spotlight on Ashley's case. She testifies in front of a Senate committee on the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. It really did cast some light on this case, and I do think slowly 
more attention and fingers crossed more resources are being put into this issue. Obviously not enough. But so she testifies and her family, the whole Loring family is basically still waiting. And I just wanted to close out the story with this quote from Kimberly, which she said to the Senate. She said, we're going missing. We are being murdered. We are not being taken seriously. I am here to stress to you, we are important and we are loved and we are missed. We will no longer be the invisible people in the United States of America. We have worth. I think it's so important as true crime experts to sometimes take a broader look at things. I think that for me, at least, I can be so hard on myself whenever I learn about something so horrific as this that affects other ethnicities or other races or cultures and be frustrated with myself. How did I not know this before? So I'm really interested in learning more about it. And I think it's so important to look at this from an educational standpoint and just be patient with ourselves and learn about this to truly understand it and be able to help. Absolutely. And um, Karina, I know I'm going to give you credit here. It was your idea to bring on an Indigenous expert to talk more about these broader issues. So we brought on Fochik, who's the social media director of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA. And it was my great honor to speak with her. I was hoping you could just tell me a little bit about how Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA was formed. We were formed by Deborah May Tubby Denton. At the time of it, this being formed, she was living in the Navajo Nation territory in New Mexico. And she had already been working with a missing persons organization. It was centered around Native American people. And Deborah is a Chickasaw woman just like I am. Uh, so she was living there and going to school out there and doing the missing persons work. And during her time there, she had several friends become MMIW cases. Several of her friends were killed. It was very sad, very painful for her. And she had already cared about the missing persons issue. But then it became really personal for her. It seems to me from my outsider perspective that in recent years, there has been more attention, maybe slowly being paid to these issues. Is that something that you guys have noticed? Oh, most certainly. In the last two years, especially, the amount of attention that the issue has gotten has just really skyrocketed. What I mean by that is like you had several really big cases that went to like they were brought to the attention of Congress. Media was really interested in it. A lot of cases started becoming talked about. More of the recent ones, there's so many older cases because this is such a long-standing issue. It's been around, you know, yeah. for centuries, really, especially this past year. In this episode, we are opening by talking about a case, a missing children's case that happened in the suburbs. You know, the spaces where cases happen that get media attention and the suburbs are a big one. You know, mm -hmm. the media loves a white suburban missing case. Oh, um, gosh, yes. As I'm sure you are, have noticed. Yeah. Um, 
it seems to me that the reservation is an overlooked space in like the true crime imagination or the the media's imagination. Is that fair to say? Well, as far as like reservations and native communities go, um, there's a very prevalent issue that goes beyond MMIW. And that is the fact that people don't even know that like there's a lot of people who don't even know that Native Americans still exist. Mm. I've experienced this personally. You know, I've been told, oh, you can't be Native American because they all died out. They're some kind of legendary, uh, you know, thing of the past. And um, media really has helped reinforce that idea because we're portrayed as like historical relics instead of a living culture or really a living set of cultures because yeah just you know indigenous cultures that vary so much and uh those aren't portrayed it's just the old outdated really obnoxious stereotypes yeah um so when you have everyone thinking oh you know well natives you know they're not really around anymore then Mm. you know it becomes a thing like, you know, there's no one living on the reservations, really. There's nothing going Mm. on there. And so no one really knows. It's like, it's not as easy to uh, sensationalize our issues without pointing out how long it's been going on and the root causes. And those Mm. root causes, you know, colonization, all kinds of government oppression and genocidal practices, those kinds of things you know, it makes people feel a lot of things. Well, it seems to me that you're saying that the media doesn't necessarily want to cover these cases because the root issues are so deep and tough that not very many media outlets are willing to take the time to tackle how complex they are. Exactly. There's a lot of that going on. Since we're talking about the Heavy Runner case, Ashley Loring mm-hmm. Heavy Runner, that case is in Montana, and I actually I know way more about Montana than most people do. <laughs> that state, I feel like, highlights the worst parts and the worst, biggest root causes of the issue mm. in a really you know comprehensive way for people to understand. Uh, Montana is actually like per capita, it's not a state that has a lot of natives, but it's still like, it's there's a very strong native presence despite natives only being like 6% of Montana's total population. Okay. I believe there's seven reservations in Montana and they're all pretty much like very rural, uh, mm-hmm. but several of them are close to major cities like Billings. So Billings, Montana, there's a lot of native people living there. So you have a fairly strong urban native community, not only in Billings, but in other cities. We've always seen Billings as a center for trafficking because trafficking Mm. is a huge part of this. If we were to draw a pretty comprehensive route of trafficking as a whole, you know, across the western part of the United States, Interstate 40, and that goes from the southeast all the way like out to you know, New Mexico and Arizona, that is a really big trafficking route. So for me, like looking at a map, it seems to correspond with a lot of cases that resemble the stereotypical trafficking case. Those kinds of cases occur more in those locations. With that being said, um, trafficking, as far as Native women go, Native women 
are an easy target. Traffickers know that Native women are an easy target Mm -hmm. because the U.S. government has a role in that, actually. The Supreme Mm -hmm. Court ruled in 1978 in a case called Oliphant versus the Suquamish tribe that tribes could not prosecute non-Native people who commit crimes on their lands. Mm. So the federal government, the FBI, federal courts, those are the entities that become in charge of the jurisdiction of crimes committed by non-Native people on reservations. Mm. So, you know, traffickers know, okay, I'm not a Native person. I'm not a tribal citizen. I can go take someone off of a reservation and the feds aren't really going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pretty much going to go scot-free. The government isn't going to send anybody after them. No one is really going to go looking for them. It's, it's just very sad. And then also, Native women have a look, you know, generally the stereotypical features of Native people are fetishized by Mm. a lot of predatory people, a lot of people Mm. who are interested in trafficking. We're fetishized, and so that makes Native women a target as well. Like, why is a sexy Pocahontas costume so bad? It's like, oh, because Native women, you know, we're sexualized to the point that, like, we can't be safe because people are looking at us and they're like, oh, I want to use that culture for my sexual gratification. Mm. I want to use those people. And it's disgusting. So you have the jurisdiction issues, you have the sexualization, and that makes trafficking really, really prevalent. And this also, um, you know, plays into other parts of the MMIW issue. Uh, Mm. We know that traffickers often go after kids. Native kids are also victims of that. If you take Montana, for example, Uh, There is a child welfare crisis going on in that state. A lot Mm. of kids are living in households where natives have so much of what in MMIWSA, we refer to it as historical trauma. And I know a lot of other organizations and institutions utilize that term. And so these people have historical trauma that is the result of genocide and assimilation policies that's passed down through their family. And then, you know, just living in the trauma every day, these parents, grandparents, they don't know how to heal. They're passing on their trauma to their kids, whether they mean to or not. And, you know, that's not their fault. For a lot of Native kids living with the conditions, like if you live on a reservation, the conditions that you live in can be really upsetting. Mm -hmm. And it can make a lot of kids feel hopeless They can make a lot of kids feel depressed. Natives actually have a very significant rate of suicide because so many of us are just stuck feeling hopeless because Mm -hmm. of, you know, the conditions that many of us are forced to live in. That kind of thing, these kids are just, whether they're being abused at home or not, a lot of them are like, I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. The house I'm living in is making me dwell on all of these things that cause me pain. I just Mm want to escape it. And a lot of these kids run away. The last question I wanted to ask you is what can people do to help specifically our listeners, you know, without like contributing to the white savior problem, where would you direct people? At the baseline, you know, just talking about it 
and asking questions to Indigenous people in a respectful way. And, you know, not even every Indigenous person understands the issue themselves. So you Mm -hmm. want to ask informed people that we all have a different experience. We're all impacted by it in a different way. Every Mm -hmm. tribe has different histories and even different relationships with the issue and the communities around them that affect Native issues in their area. Mm -hmm. So just talking about it, learning more about it, that makes a difference. And telling other people about it. And then, you know, sharing our post on our page, giving support to MMIW USA, giving support to other MMIW organizations, whether it be just, you know, social media or showing Mm -hmm. up to events or financial donations, you know, financial stuff. We get a lot of donations and those donations, just to give an example, we've been able to hire private investigators to help with cases. I love that. We have been able to fund searches. We've been able to get people plane tickets home or Mm -hmm. bus tickets home after they've been trafficked or gone missing. We've been able to help feed Mm -hmm. and clothe the kids of murdered women and you know the families of murdered women and just helping these families help support them help get justice for people that is what we do with that money so karina as someone who is steeped in true crime and has been for a while I got to tell you, researching this case was a real eye-opener for me. There was so much here I didn't know. There was so much about not just Ashley's case, but about this whole epidemic that I had just truly never encountered in all of my true crime research. And it was very humbling. I feel very glad to know it now and very inspired to keep learning about it going forward. And, you know, I personally... I'm donating to Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA, and I can't wait, honestly. Tori, I really like that you had that experience because I think education and learning about something else is the first step to really Mm -hmm. figuring out how to make a difference. And like always, all of our links will be in our show notes, so you can also donate if you would like. Yes, please do. Also, don't forget to watch the ID two-part series, Who Killed the Lion Sisters, Saturday, November 28th at 9 p.m. as part of their True Crime at 9 event. Yes, and give us a call. We have a special phone line set up where you can call us, ask us questions, uh, recommend cases that you'd like us to cover, leave comments, etc. So you can reach us at 888-9-R-E-D-F-L-A. That's 888-973-3352. We like to thank our guests this week for such incredible conversations. And just a reminder that we will be off for the next week and we will be coming back on December 10th. For more true crime conversations, be sure to check out ID on Twitter at Discovery ID or on Instagram and TikTok at Investigation Discovery. And you can ask us questions on our own Instagram feeds too. I'm at Tori underscore underscore Telfer. And I am at the Karina Michelle. Thanks for listening today. Red Flags is a production of Investigation Discovery and Audiation. For ID, our executive producers are Jessica Lowther and Amy Angelowitz. For Audiation, our executive producers are Sandy Smollins and Michael Wolfson. Mark Lotto is our story editor. Ireland Meacham is our producer. And Brad Stratton is our editor mixer. 
Theme music by Marty Beller. Audiation. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.